As we're in a series on James, I invite you to turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be speeding right along with three more verses today. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. gospel is, I bring myself, my sins, failures, flaws, problems, setbacks, downfalls, all that is evil and filthy and corrupt to the table. And I ask God, will you take it? He says, yes. And I ask God, will you make me better? God says, even better than that, I will remake you. I will clothe you in righteousness. And that righteousness is both being clothed and sealed for salvation in that God sees Jesus when he sees me, which is good news. He sees perfection. You can't get any better than Jesus. I can rest in that. I'm good to go. I'm saved. I'm secured. And the judge is going to see Christ when he sees me. But that righteousness is also active, spiritual, in the form of wisdom and growth. And that I'm not only saved under the cloak of God's righteousness, but my very nature is being remade. That I'm moving out of darkness and doing dark and evil and corrupt things and heading into light. And I'm living like Jesus. I'm loving God and loving people. I'm serving God and serving people. And what's more, this is not out of command because God told me so, but my heart's desire is to do those things. I want to be righteous because my corrupt nature has been changed from the inside out. That is a big deal. This is a changed heart, a changed life. This is old, dead, and fallen nature, reshaped, remolded, and remade in the image of Christ. This is truly the definition of life-changing. This is supernatural, in that God's hand is going where no human effort can go in remaking. This does not happen in rehab. It can't happen from a hypnotist. It's the maker of me going inside of me and restoring the corruption that I have done to my soul. And perhaps what's even more flooring than this amazing reality is how it is received. It is received from a simple request from the sinner to the Savior. I invite you to stand as we read James 1, 5 through 8 together. If you're able to. James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that the people would know that any voice of authority comes from your word, from your spirit, not from me. In fact, Father, I am humbled before you. And I pray that you would remove any distractions from me and from others so that we might fully receive. Teach us to stop and listen. Clear our minds. Father, your word tells us right here, if we ask for wisdom, you are generous and you give without reproach, which is good. And we thank you for that. So we ask for wisdom today. Show us that the treasure we have is from God and not from us. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah. Maybe a lot of those. Can everybody hear me if I move this out of the way? In Moscow, I started listening to, on my routes to work for Pepsi, conservative talk radio. I discovered I can't stand it. (laughs) It's not because I disagree with everything conservatives talk about. I just don't see how whining, complaining, fear-mongering, conspiracy theorizing, theorizing, how dare you, they don't like us, they're ruining the world, helps anybody, anywhere, at any time. There's a difference between being informed versus inciting people to needless emotions. What's worse is most people, me included, when I listen to it and agree, do absolutely, positively, wholeheartedly nothing in response to it. I just, I just wasted who knows how many minutes of my time being informed of something so I can get really heated about it and do nothing. This translates over to what happens between me and God. I don't know about you, I don't know how many times I have come to the Bible, listened to a sermon, or am confronted by a fellow sinner, and I'm cut to the heart. I'm guilty. I want to change. And so I plunge into that emotional tempest of feeling the conviction and the heart movements and the poignant attitude, and man, I have a desire in my mind, by God's grace and His Spirit, to see a better me. Because I don't want to come back to this topic, this sin, this attitude in my life again. And feel the weight of conviction. Because, by God's grace, I want to be over this hurdle. I want to be over this sin that entangles me. But then, even though the pastor gave some pointers, or even though the Bible laid out some ideas, I'm left with where to start. Right? Kind of like the conservative talk radio thing. I'm all fired up and I'm going to do absolutely, positively, wholeheartedly nothing about it. Because I don't know where to start. The world needs better Christians than me. (laughs) What the world does not need in these trying times are half-hearted Christians. And I'm not going to own this desire that I'm talking about like it's something new or uniquely me because there are many people in every generation who have this heartbeat that I'm sure it's shared by many to see sold out Christians. I mean true disciples, not just, hey, 
I can read the Bible and quote three verses, and I know where the church I attend is in my town, and make it there at least three Sundays a month. And I can tell you most core doctrines, what I believe, and I'm talking about people who say, I want to be on the front line where God is. I want to beseech God daily to save souls. I want every person that God is calling to not just be pastors and missionaries, but also God calling to secular vocations to do what God is calling them to do in their respective callings. I want people to be in the will of God, doing God's plan, so the effective ministering of his kingdom is going forward in power. And I want to see churches packed to the brim with people this sold out. And by God's grace, I personally want to be right-hearted enough to be in that church too. Because I'm not there all the time. I want to be... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Where to start? It starts where the gospel started for you. Just ask. Friends, we do a great job making the relationship between God and us so thickly misconstrued and confusing. One of the many great realities of what the gospel did between us and God is make the relationship between God and us less complicated. If you don't believe me, just look in Leviticus. I mean, that's a complicated relationship. You need to sacrifice these many animals on these days, sprinkle blood that way, share the bread with those people, keep the five billion laws. And meanwhile, God becomes flesh, dies for our sins, takes our punishment, gives us righteousness, and now we're told, boldly approach the throne. No blood sprinkling, no... Schedule of feast days, no putting away the right broads, no just boldly approach the throne. Do you want to be sold out? Do you want to be the best believer that God wants you to be? And do you not know where to start? James is practical, concise, and illustrative. You won't be wondering, scratching your head, saying, I wonder what James means here. He starts, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You want wisdom to do what God wants you to do. Knowledge is simply receiving information. Wisdom is knowing how to put that knowledge into godly practice. Knowledge is simply receiving information. Wisdom is knowing how to put that knowledge into godly practice. James defines, James defines wisdom like he defines faith. Wisdom is an active thing, doing godliness. In James chapter 3, verse 13, James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then in the same chapter, in verse 17, he says, But the wisdom from above... Is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The idea of wisdom, especially in the Old Testament, is that it is indispensable for the believer. It is the mark of a righteous man, one who has wisdom. We see this demonstrated in Proverbs chapter 8. Wisdom is personified and speaking to us in Proverbs chapter 8. And we read in verses 32 through 36, again, wisdom speaking. And now, O sons, listen to me. 
Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. We especially see in those last two verses there that wisdom is almost given the place of what we are to have to be saved. (laughs) If we find wisdom, we find life and obtain favor from the Lord. And if we fail to find wisdom, we, we injure ourselves. And if we hate wisdom, we love death. It brings new meaning to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. My point in all this, when James tells us to ask God for wisdom, he's telling us to go to the author of wisdom and receive the very nature of God. Proverbs 8.22-27 tells us plainly about wisdom. And again, wisdom personified as speaking in Proverbs 8.22-27. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old, ages ago, I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. Wisdom, godliness, fruits of the Spirit. In fact, some have pointed out that James speaks of wisdom and receiving it the same way that Paul speaks of receiving the Holy Spirit. And so does Jesus. Can you hear the words that Silas read earlier in Luke 11? Jesus said, Ask, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Then down in verse 13, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? James echoes Jesus, and he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do you see the connection of wisdom to the Holy Spirit? Just ask, says James. You receive salvation by petitioning this God who gives generously to all without reproach by just asking. And you receive wisdom, the power in the Spirit to live a godly life by just asking. Again, no sacrifices, no blood sprinkled this way, bread ate that way, and feast to hold on those days. Why are people not rushing to that front? Why are people not saying, I have an audience with God Almighty? Point me in that direction. Because God is willing, God is waiting, God wants to give wisdom, He is generous to all without reproach, and it will be given Him who asks. This is the nature of God. This is the nature of the gospel. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God loved the world so much he gave, and he gave sacrificially. And so this is him 
to you. This is his affections to you. I don't know about you, so I'll continue to just yell at me. (laughs) Sometimes I get so stagnant. Sometimes I'm in this walk with God, and the Bible and the scriptures and preaching must be a conservative talk radio station because I'm here. Oh gee, I want to grow in faith. I want to grow in grace. I want to do more and be more. Sure wish I could. Just ask Kevin Davis. Lucky for me, I have a God who's generous and liberal and abundant in wisdom and practical insertions of godliness that is active into my life. And he gives without reproach. What does that mean? That means I have a sure foundation in God every time I come to him every week. And though this scripture should correct me in this area, let me let you in on me, I nevertheless am often saying to God, God, I don't, I know I don't deserve it. I know I'm a sinner, but I want to be fed, and I want Woodland friends to be fed with your gospel truth, your wisdom, your word. And so I pray, God, don't quench us on account of my sins. But, as you promise, please consider Jesus when you see me. Asking to feed your congregation your truth. See, God is never in the habit of saying, you know what? Not this time. You're too much of a hypocrite. Jesus' punishment for your sins wasn't enough. I'm going to hold it over you. I don't see God doing that. Because Jesus' sacrifice is always enough for my sins. His grace is always sufficient. And for the genuine believer on the genuine path of repentance, God is a liberal Giver. He never withholds his wisdom to those with genuine hearts who request it. So why are people, like me, not flocking to him, boldly approaching the throne? Why am I not there more often? I'll tell you what it is. It's a faith problem. James continues at the beginning of verse 6, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. Now, every time I've read this, I think I've taken the wrong approach. I tend to get a little superstitious in this. You know, whenever you're climbing a ladder and somebody tells you what? Don't look down. What do you do? You look down. Likewise, I used to be frantic and thinking, oh God, I really believe you can give me wisdom. You're not going to find a doubter in me. I'm asking for wisdom in this area. I'm going to get it. I'm sure I'll get it. I won't doubt. The doubt here in context, refers to one doubting faith in God, period. Doubting his existence, doubting the truth in the Bible, period. James is not talking about the subtle doubts or the uncertainties that some of us might have when we pray for loved ones to get better. Well, if God wants to heal him, I don't know, I don't see it too often. Rather, James is talking about in that illustration, I don't even know why I'm praying. God's probably not even real. That's the doubt that James is talking about. Now, for sure, doubt in a simple request of wisdom might eventually or sometimes reflect a deeper-seated doubt that if you're praying for wisdom, doubting you'll receive it, it might reflect you doubt the character of God, you doubt that he is loving and generous and gives without reproach. I think about Abraham. He's the father of our faith. He's the one who had uh, righteousness credited to him for his faith. And we might think that he had doubts. He believed that God existed, no doubt there. But as for the promises of God, there were times where he might have doubted, right? 
descendants as numerous as the stars from me. Maybe you mean mean from the person in my house that I'm going to give all my inheritance to. Or maybe you mean between me and Sarah's maid Hagar. No, says God. I mean Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah. That's where the descendants are coming from. You heard me right. I don't think the doubts that Abraham are having and the doubts that we have like that from time to time is what James is referring to here. In fact, about this Abraham who had understandable doubts, Paul tells us in Romans 4, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So what James is talking about is contrary to the faith of Abraham. James is talking about the doubt that wavers belief, right? Abraham believed the descendants would come, maybe just not the exact way God told him it would. Uncertainty and hesitation at times plagued Abraham. The doubt that James is talking about, though, is for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is for the person in which the gospel has not captivated. This is for the person who does not see what they were saved from. Sins, right? I guess my mistakes that have been forgiven somehow by the blood of some guy who's also God. The doubter that James speaks of is a person who does not understand the profound problem in the world is not bad causes, bad people, bad this, bad that. It's something that we all have, and it's called sin. It's an act of malevolent disobedience against the Creator God Almighty. And what's worse, we share it, we have it. The same evil that propels evil men to do evil, rotten things, that even the most ungodly, unsaved, and unbelieving heart might even find abominable, in which justice would take place, that same evil resides in us. And the doubter doubts that justice has taken place and will take place. The doubter doesn't know that justice took place at the cross for those who would accept the justice done to Christ and in turn be justified, declared righteous by his act if we would just ask. The doubter wonders if vengeance will ever be done to those who do evil. And the doubter doesn't know that vengeance is God's, says the Lord. The doubter doesn't know that all of life's joys, pleasures, worth, value, safety, security, abundance, and everything that matters is to be had in Christ, in Christ alone. Because if the doubter knew that, they would not be riding the fence. So instead of knowing Christ, doubters will treat Christ like anything else, merely a servant to themselves, merely another resource that I will dip into like anything I dip into to basically serve me. Oh, and what the pastor, if, if what he said this, this week was great, I'll come back. Now, Kevin, I don't know about Jesus, the cross, sin, blood, but some of your principles, like whenever you opened up about not being half-hearted, that's great stuff. We should have some good, bedrock, passionate causes. I don't know about all the God stuff. 
And the doubter, tossed like waves, will ride that wave. And then maybe later on hear something that suits their fancy. Well, this guy made a pretty convincing argument for there being no God. And he says most Christians live under the weight and fear of God about to zap them. And I don't want to be one of those guys. This guy says to believe in no God frees people to live out to their full potential, not afraid that they'll tick off God. I want to rest in that. And then they'll hear a New Age talk, and they'll say, well, everyone has their own spirituality, so I guess if some people want to be Christian and others want to be Muslim, you know, whatever works for you. James says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, God is not interested in being in my Sunday slot. He is not interested in being marked down in my schedule, you know, one of the many boxes of wisdom that I just dip my hands into at times. Sometimes I have my TV talk show host box of wisdom, and then I have my psychology books, and then I have my horoscopes, and then I have God's voice as preached to me by Kevin Davis, which God help you, and then I have some books, and, and, and when one of these boxes of wisdom doesn't work, I'll dip my hand into another box. James is making a picture here. He talked about the waves, but he also says doubters are unstable in all his ways. The idea of instability, a drunk man. <laughs> Walking down the street, don't know where my car is, don't know where I'm at. God's generous with his wisdom, but he's not stupid. <laughs> you're coming to me for wisdom, you're just going to go back to the bar when I give it to you. I'll give it to someone who will receive it. So if we want wisdom, it's a call for us to wake up. Who is God to me? Is he not just my Savior, train ticket to heaven? But do I know him as he's truly revealed himself to me? Not just Lord as in domineering sovereign, though he be Lord, but life. Bread of heaven, salvation, joy, true delight. Whenever I was a preteen, Heading into teenager, there was a neighborhood kid that took, that took a liking to our family. He was between my age and my older brother, who's about three years older. We'll name this kid Chuck. He really took a liking to my brother. He was closer in his age than to me. And Chuck came from a pretty broken family, mixed family, all brothers. I don't think Chuck shared the same set of biological parents with any of them. Maybe the mom had some similar brothers with him. I don't know how often his mom and dad were home. Um, I do know that his dad had some major run-ins with the law. He was in and out of jail because he was an alcoholic, that sort of thing. Chuck saw our family, and I think he was starved for family attention. Starved for the love that I think he saw. He was one of those people that came over quite a bit, most of the time, unannounced. He was a decent enough guy, and we trusted him, though we knew he was rough around the edges. He was really clingy probably because his home was so broken. And it got to the point to where if my brother saw him coming through the window, my brother would hide and tell me to lie to Chuck that my brother was not home at the time. Because usually Chuck would come over and hang out with my brother for hours on end. It was a good Christian thing to do, I know. Well, our family ended up taking Chuck to church. And he seemed to want to come fairly often. He got involved with the youth group for a while. We went on a youth conference together. How young I was, <clears throat> I even knew then that Chuck was not totally on board. One, I remember actually at the conference that it was at the Kibbe Dome in 
Moscow, and it was a lock-in for seven hours, Super 7, that's what our church would do, and I remember going to the elevator once to go somewhere, and I opened it, and there was Chuck, and right as it opens, he says in a half-sheepishly, half-sarcastic sort of way, Jesus loves you. I could tell for Chuck, he wasn't totally on board. And I don't know if he was coming to church to get away from his home life, or if he wanted to spend more time with our family, and predominantly with my brother. But there were a few times where he seemed to be genuinely repentant in the seats, crying and praying. However, seriousness with the faith seemed to come in small increments. Most of the time, he was lighthearted at church. He seemed to be not all in. Church was basically, I think, school to him, but on Sundays, just a different building, different authority figures, and different crowd. Somewhere to spend his hours. I don't remember all the reasons. I think maybe he moved, or maybe he lost interest, or maybe there was a falling out between my brother and him. I think my brother finally had a straight-up talk with him about feeling too crowded by him. I don't know, or don't remember at all, but Chuck left church, and he left interacting with our family. The last time I saw him, heard about him, he didn't care for church. He did not definitely appear to be, for any reason, safe. Call it his fault for a failure to get really serious. Call it our church's fault for a failure to disciple well. Call it our family's fault. The point being is that Chuck struck me as the example of a person who struggled with the sort of doubt that James is talking about. I don't even know if he knew why he was at church, what he expected to get out of it, or if from the get-go it was just an excuse to be somewhere else and be with a family and friends that he liked. The point being, this sort of ambiguous, half-interested, so-called faith is not what God is out for. God's out for devoted followers. God's out for people who would pick up their cross daily and follow him who lose their lives for the sake of him and the gospel. And so if you're convicted and you say, what do I do? Well, you find a better church, because I can't help you, right? That's what a lot of people do. I'm not being fed here, I'm moving. (laughs) And sometimes that happens. If I ever turn into a preacher that teaches you four ways to tie your shoes better and do it like a Christian, you won't be getting fed here. (laughs) And I pray to God that I'm never one of those teachers. If a church is not teaching you Jesus and preaching Jesus from the Bible, I believe you will be starved. You're convicted, and what do you do? I read a better Bible translation and get out a checklist. And if I don't at least do one command from the Bible every day, my Bible reading, I can check off while I have to think of plan B. You're convicted. You want the church and the believers to have sold-out faith, not chuck faith, not half-hearted faith. What do you do? Well, we hire the best teachers and preachers and fill the churches with them and put out a rigorous membership process, great accountability. James presents a better idea than all of my wonderful man-made ideas that we love to throw at problems. It's back in our first verse we looked at. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. It is the gospel all over again. God provides what he demands. God says, I want you, but I hate sin, so in order to have communion with you, I need sinless people. Well, God, that sounds rather impossible. I'd love to be in communion with the God who made me too, but as you said, I'm a sinner. God says, I'll become man, I'll live the sinless life that I want, then I'll become a sacrifice and substitution for you, then you can have the communion of love that we both desire. 
God demands holiness and perfection. He provides it through Jesus. God wants his disciples to live in wisdom, to live godly, practical lives, loving and serving God, loving and serving others. We're not left to fend for ourselves. But those of us who are serious, and by God's grace, let it be all of us, who know that he exists and are yearning to do what he says, just ask him. What he demands, he provides. He demands wise lives, he provides the wisdom to live them. If this is true, and and this is, let us accept the fact humbly and yearn wholeheartedly for the wholehearted Christian life. Because the world does not need half-hearted Christians. The world does not need shy, timid, walk all over me in your hatred and anger, and keep taking advantage of the vulnerable, because at least I'm saved. They'll hide behind my rock. Christians. God saved the world through Jesus, and he's given us his wisdom and spirit to keep saving the world for his namesake. By his grace and in his power. We don't need chucks who go to church for the fun of it. We don't need half-hearted Christians who use Sundays like their TV. I'll be entertained and slightly moved for a few hours. The world desperately needs, and God saved us for sold-out, whole-hearted Christians who boldly approach the throne knowing they are saved, to talk to the Savior and God Almighty, whom they find complete joy, satisfaction, and life, and for the wisdom that it takes to be who God created them to be. To be life-givers, joy-sharers, peacemakers, godly ambassadors. I ask myself, am I in? I want to be in. I still want to be in. I'm tired of of church on Sundays, just like it's the grocery store on Fridays. I'm tired of timid, shy, sit back, don't offend anyone because I said Jesus. <laughs> Meanwhile, the road to destruction is wide, and I think I'm on the narrow road. But I'm too lazy, too shy, too tired, too timid to stretch out my hand and see if anyone will come with me. So you want wisdom where you are at, where God placed you. You want wisdom on how to reach the lost neighbor in your reach. You want wisdom on how to be effective for God in his kingdom. You want wisdom in what gifts you have and how it can be used in service for God's kingdom. You want wisdom in how to survive your latest trial. You want wisdom in how to be Jesus with your loved ones, how to navigate life, how to glorify God better, how to point to him more clearly. You want wisdom to dive deeper. Grow stronger, live freer in God's grace, and love stronger than you've ever loved before. Then know this. You serve, love, pray to, and believe in a living, breathing God who speaks. A God who loves you, a God who is generous, a God who will give the very wisdom without reproach. And you might say, give me something practical, Kevin. Be words of Jesus for me. Be the words of guidance for me. I believe that God speaks through the preaching on Sundays, and he's preaching today. It's very practical and very wise. It's this. You have a personal relationship with God, so don't let me, don't let every sermon, don't let anything get in the way between this beautiful reality, because God can speak to you directly. Now, he might answer through sermons, through Bible reading, through various means, but don't ever think you lack access to God for wisdom. I have a fear because I've been there that there are boatloads of Christians sitting around waiting for God to speak, when the sad truth is is that Christians have never asked for him to speak to begin with. 
Boatloads of Christians who say, well, God speaks to me mostly through my favorite pastor. I'll wait until I get a hold of his next sermon. God spoke to me through this author. God mostly speaks through. And what Jesus has done on the cross has given you the ability to approach the throne and ask God outright. <laughs> Just ask. Stop waiting for the perfect sermon. Stop coming up with excuses as to why you and God have to speak as if you're a mouse and he's the cheese and go find him. Ask in faith and he will answer. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Because then you'll have to respond. God Almighty will speak to you. But if you accepted him as Savior and Lord, then ask Lord, which means master or teacher. Guide me. What do you want me to do here? Ask God, he'll respond. Ask God, he'll give wisdom freely, abundantly, graciously, without reproach. He won't say to you who come in faith, I'd rather not. I'd rather let you scratch around the maze a little more, little mouse. <laughs> he'll say, these are guidelines for obedience, not consideration. This is hope giving for me, because here's what I envision. If every one of us today said, I will go ask God for wisdom, what would Woodland Friends, what would Woodland Period look like if it was full of disciples who undoubtedly, without hesitance, unreservedly, with abandon, just ask God for wisdom? Are there lives right now that have been stagnant for too long because we've been waiting for something that we've never asked for? Are there situations that could be resolved with the wisdom of God that comes liberally to all those who ask in faith and obedience? Are there relationships that could be mended if both parties were obedient to the wisdom God gives? And are there half-hearted Christians that would become whole-hearted Christians if they get off the fence and got on board with God and say, I surrender? I'm done Wave riding, I'm done drunk walking, I'm on board with you. I ask you to save me and take me where I've never been, closer to you, doing your will, being who you want me to be. What would Woodland Friends and what would Woodland, period, be like if all of us just asked God for wisdom? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I mentioned last week that my personal title for this book is often the book of ouch. Because James pulls no punches. Because he's not out to massage your backs. He's out to get us to walk closer to you. Because he knows what that walk does for our lives. It transforms us and makes us all the better. Father, many of us are dealing with problems. It's been a long journey. Perhaps it's still a long journey in front of us. But we're left wondering, like I am sometimes, so many times. What do I do? What now? Father, you've given us truth today that we can ask you. So, Father, for those people today who are just asking for wisdom in their situation, would your word continue to prove true as we know it is? And would the answers come? Whether it be you reveal it to us in however way you would reveal it to us, but, Father, we know that you will reveal it to us. Many times you already have, we're just not looking. So, Father, we ask for forgiveness for those times that we have ignored you because we know the answer already, but we want a different one. Uh, we ask for forgiveness for not even asking you to begin with. And, Father, would you remind us that every problem, everything, everything in life, period, it begins with asking you. It doesn't come to that. Father, we love you and we thank you. 
Father, we thank you and we ask and pray these things in Jesus. Amen.